excellent, excellent. All right, everybody have notes? Does, does anybody need notes? I don't think so. We have a few in excess. All right, so your notes are going to be some of the same pages from last week, so I reprinted them just in case you didn't get them, but also uh, a few new pages as well. Uh, so to start with, um, I would like... Yeah, I would like to look at this paragraph that I put, put in there from Irenaeus. He's a church father, uh, and there are fragments of his writings that don't know where they belong in his corpus, his library, just fragments all over. And this is one of those fragments. So there's different websites. I collect them all, and they're really fascinating to, um, to read. Hey, Mandy, real quick, will you, on my desk, there's a book called... Getting to know the church fathers. Will you grab that for me? Irenaeus is a fantastic character in the Bible. Um, I'll get into his story just in just a moment, uh, but I want to read this paragraph for us. This is somebody who's writing in the late 100s, right? Probably somewhere around 185, 190, something like that, okay? And this is his. His words about the scriptures as a whole, and he begins basically from the beginning and goes all the way to the end of time, uh, and he sees all things being wrapped up in Christ. And I think this is just a wonderful paragraph. It says, The law and the prophets and the evangelists have declared that Christ was born of a virgin and suffered on the cross, was raised also from the dead and taken up into heaven. Thank you that he was glorified and reigns forever. So that first sentence, that is just the, a creedal statement, right? This is what essentially you must believe to be a Christian. If we are gonna, we can't argue with this, or if we do, we have some other issues we need to deal with, right? And then he goes on, says he was, uh, he himself termed the perfect intellect, the word of God, that's the logos from John. He is the first begotten, after trans, uh, transcendent manner, after a transcendent manner, the creator of man, all in all, patriarch, let me make sure I don't skip, patriarch among the patriarchs, law in the law, the priest among priests, um, king, I'm, I'm losing my place, I'm sorry here, <laughs> priest among priests, among kings, prime leader, the prophet among the prophets, the angel among angels, the man among men, son in the father, God in God, king in all eternity. To pause there, and then I want to highlight this, bold, this bolded section, emboldened section. Um, but, but here again, what he says, he is the very word of God. He's the first begotten in transcendent manner. He's the creator of man, all in all. Patriarch among the patriarchs. Right? So he even looks at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says what these patriarchs are, Jesus is the ultimate patriarch. Right? He is the patriarch. He is the one that the patriarchs are pointing to. He is the one that the patriarchs are patterning their lives after. Okay? And then he says, law in the law. The law is the expression of the very character of God. Christ is the character of God. Right? He is God. He is the law, capital L, in the law. He is the priest among priests. He's the ultimate priest that all the priests point to. Among kings, prime leader. The prophet among the prophets. The angel among the angels. Man among men. 
son of the father, or son in the father, God and God, king in all eternity. And he says, he was sold with Joseph and he guided Abraham, was bound along with Isaac and wandered with Jacob. With Moses, he was leader and respecting the, uh, respecting the people legislator. He preached in the prophets, was incarnate of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, received by John and baptized in the Jordan and tempted in the desert and proved to be Lord. I'm gonna let you read the rest of it because it's a lot of the same language as he walks through his life. But for Irenaeus, his early church father, he sees Christ as the absolute foundation for all history and all knowing, right? And, and this is, I'm not going to get into philosophy a whole lot, but a very basic thing that we need to understand is that ways of knowing works typically in three ways, right? And there, you have metaphysics, which is the foundation. On top of metaphysics, you have epistemology. And on top of that, you have ethics. The metaphysics is what is real? That's the question that it asks. What is real? Epistemology is to say, well, how do we know it's real? And then ethics is to say, how do I now live, right? Based off of all of this. What, what Irenaeus is saying is that metaphysics is Jesus. <laughs> and then he goes on, epistemology is also Jesus, and it's a triune God and all of this, right? What we must do to be good Bible readers is to look at the whole world, what is real in history, physically, spiritually, emotionally, say all that is real is to be wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus is the essence of reality, right? When the Bible says that all things are held together in him, like the Bible means that, right? When, when it says in him we live and move and find our being, the Bible means that. What we tend to do is we import all sorts of stuff outside of Scripture, outside of Christ, into our metaphysics or our understanding of what is real. So in the 17th century, uh, the Enlightenment came about, and the Enlightenment really went to great efforts to say, metaphysically speaking, there's nothing magical, spiritual, transcendent, nothing outside of ourselves what is real is what we can empirically prove, right? So this is where the scientific method came and what I can see, this is what's real, what I can taste, what I can touch, what the senses are engaging with, this is how I can determine what is actually real, right? So this became the dominant worldview, and it still is even today. This is the dominant worldview, that what is truly real is not outside of us. But before the Enlightenment, for the first 1,600 years of church history, what is truly real is something transcendent. It's something that is personal. It's something that is outside of us, and we are brought up into it somehow. Um, and this is what you get from Irenaeus when he is saying that he was sold with Joseph. Right? He wandered with Abraham. These lives are wrapped up in, in what is truly real, which is Christ. Are there any questions on, on that or any thoughts? Okay, um, Irenaeus was one of the early church fathers. Again, he, uh, I should have highlighted the spot that I want to read in this. He was in Rome. 
he was a very uh, devout disciple of Christ. He wanted to know Christ. He, 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 for Irenaeus, Jesus was at the center of, of everything. And the really cool thing about Irenaeus is that he was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, the apostle. And there is this quote that I have from Irenaeus when he talks about Polycarp. And uh, it is, it is, it, it almost gives you chills because he, uh, I can't talk and do, this, do something at the same time. It just doesn't work for me. I apologize. <laughs> um, okay. He, he was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp sat at the feet of John the Apostle, right? So there's a quote in here where Irenaeus um, is remembering fondly Polycarp, who was martyred, right? He died as an old man, and they told him to deny Christ. And Polycarp said something along the lines of, um, he has been faithful to me my all 85 years. How can I not be faithful to him now? Or something along those lines. Does anybody have that quote memorized? Okay, well, I came closer than you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right. I am able to describe the very place in which blessed Polycarp sat as he discoursed, in his goings out and comings in, and the manner of his life, in his physical appearance, in his discourses to the people, in the accounts which he gave of his time spent with John and others who had seen the Lord. And, he, and as he remembered their words and what he had heard from them concerning the Lord and his miracles and teaching, having received it from the eyewitnesses of the word of life, Polycarp passed on these things in harmony with the scriptures. Like, I don't know, when I read that, it's, it almost, it does something to me. Like I'm reading the words of somebody who was talking about somebody who actually knew the Apostle John, right? It just brings it all so close. So I read that earlier today, and I thought it was amazing. <laughs> okay, so that's Polycarp, or excuse me, Irenaeus. He speaks to this metaphysics of, of Christ in everything. So when we read the scriptures... We see this as the very word of Christ who is the foundation of all that is real, the essence of all that is real. So when we read the scriptures, Christ must necessarily be all throughout it, right? He must be. Or the scriptures are doing something other than being the scriptures. They're not just historical documents. We've talked about this a lot. But they are the very, it's the very inspired word of God revealed through the Spirit in Christ from Genesis to Revelation. So when we read it, we are to read it looking for Jesus. Something switched, and it's not, it's not bad, right? Uh, but something switched when the Enlightenment came, and we began to think about what is real, not in relation to God or that which is outside of us, but in relation to our senses, is that we began to take a critical approach to the text, saying, I need to know exactly what this is what this says, historical, uh, the grammar, all that. Um, that discipline was developed out of the enlightenment on how to read the Bible. It's actually really good. We must read the Bible historically and critically and look at it and, and try to understand um, how all of this worked within time, within space and history, and how the text works together. But the early church fathers were not, and, and most of the church history, they were not as concerned about going to the text, trying to discover the historical, grammatical, textual meaning of the author's original intent. That wasn't the main goal for Bible reading. 
The main goal was where is Jesus in the Bible? That's the, they, they searched the scriptures looking for Christ. And they did this because Jesus told them to, right? He, he rebuked the, the Jews in John chapter 5. You've read the scriptures. If you had read it rightly, you would have known it was about me, essentially. Right? So this is a practice that the early church fathers did. This is a practice that the author of Hebrews did. This is a practice that uh, we see Peter doing even in Pentecost when he's talking about Psalm 110, uh, which is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Um, he said, how does David say this when he's buried in the ground? And that, you know, he goes through this whole thing saying it's all about Jesus. Right? So there's, we don't want to abandon the tools that we have received with Bible study, but we also want to make sure we press into where Jesus is found in the scriptures. And this, I hope, brings a lot of peace to you as you read the Bible, because when we read the scriptures and we're looking for Jesus, it is, a, it is the right endeavor. It is the right path to walk. Um, last week, we talked some more about the Augustine's idea that the totus Christus, that we are one with Christ, we are the bride of Christ. And he talks about the, Paul's account on the road to Emmaus when he comes before the Lord and the Lord shows himself in the light and he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me, right? Speaking of the church as being himself. And then we see this in Matthew 25 as well with the separation of the sheep and the goats and the sheep get uh, get rewarded because what they did to the least of these, they, you also did to me, right? So he had, Jesus identifies himself with his bride as one in the same, right? One in the same, they are, they are connected. So what the Lord has put together, no man should tear asunder, right? I mean, this is part of the marriage vows of what husband and wife is to be, so is Christ in the church. So Augustine takes this very seriously and says, so when you look for Christ, look for his bride. And when you see his bride, look for Christ, because they are one and the same. They are locked together. So when we read the scriptures looking for Christ as his bride, we are to do so with no fear, looking for Jesus. It's much like a marriage where it is a marriage. But in my marriage, if the first couple years was me bringing flowers to Mandy, saying, here, I know she loves this. Actually, this kind of happened. I used to get her orchids. I thought she loved them. And I would, every time I got her flowers, I get her orchids. And one day she goes, you know what? I really don't like orchids that much. <laughs> really? <laughs> I had no idea. I thought you would love them. You remember that? <laughs> I haven't got her, gotten her an orchid since. But here's, here's, here's what didn't happen. I wasn't doing anything wrong by giving her an orchid. I was trying to love my wife. I was trying to show her my affections for her, and so on, by giving her this orchid. I just, I didn't have it right. And that's okay. I still learned something, and, and she, we, we still grew together even in that, right? Um, if I spent the next five years uh, trying to do acts of service for her, I'm going through the Love Languages book, right? You do acts of services, and after a couple of years, she's like, you know what? I really don't care that you do this. I don't mind doing the laundry. I don't mind doing the dishes. I wish she would say that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she does. <laughs> I love doing the laundry. <laughs> um, and then after a few years, if she kind of said, hey, you know what, don't, that, that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't really make me feel as loved as you think it does. Oh, okay. Well, and then you try the next thing, right? So this is like Bible reading. There's nothing, 
dangerous about that. There's nothing wrong with me trying to find out what my wife loves. And if we are the bride of Christ, as we search for him in the scriptures, we are to do so fully secure in Christ, not afraid that we're going to slip and fall into um, some sort of heresy or some sort of um, heretical doctrine. And this also happens when we do it together. This is the importance of being in community. So we can say, hey, I think I see something going on in Leviticus about Christ. And you can have other people saying, I don't think that's what's going on. Oh, okay. Right? This is how it works. This is how the bride is to be the bride and how we are to pursue the bridegroom, which is Christ in the scriptures. All right. Any, any thoughts or clarifications I can give on any of that? All right. Last week, we talked about typology, and we're going to do this some more this week. So when we read the scriptures, we are to, as the church fathers taught us, and most of church history has taught us, and a lot of modern theologians, right? So this isn't like an ancient practice that you have to pull out of the catacombs to, uh, to see. Um, but we are to do so believing Christ is the absolute reality, the, the, the metaphysical truth of all things, right? Everything is wrapped up in Christ, which then will drastically change how we view the world too because it's not just all things in Scripture is wrapped up in Christ, but all creation is wrapped up in Christ, which is, brings yeah, a whole new perspective on how we even live our lives. Um, so when we read the Scriptures, we are to look for how the Scriptures work together as a tapestry. If it's music, right, we want to pay attention to the music and know where it's going, um, find its conclusion, find its counterparts, and so on. We want to be able to listen to the, to the song of the Scripture. And the way that we do that when we get into a text is we want to look for patterns. Remember, the, the Bible, the structure of the, the Bible matters greatly, and it matters in the way of patterns more so than it does with paragraphs or verses or chapters. So we look for repeated vocabulary, repeated themes, baptism, ascension, atonement, repeated scenes. We did this last week with uh, Psalm 23 and Mark 6. Remember how Psalm 23 kind of sets a scene that Mark 6 is actually developed in? So look for these sort of scenes, and we'll look at that later today as well. Um, we want to pay attention to the structure, look for the different stories like the creation stories or Exodus stories, um, redemption stories, pay attention to numbers. All of these things we want to pay attention to when we read so that we can begin to uncover what's going on in the passage. And then we, we talked about how this sort of reading, a typological reading, as we work through the quadriga, is actually something that is a biblical, is a biblical um, tool. The Bible reads itself this way. The Bible actually tells us to do that. Uh, again, John 5.46, Jesus himself says that if you would, if, uh, for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But you do not believe his writings, you don't believe me either. So he's saying the Old Testament wrote of me, the road to Emmaus, we looked at that. The, um, he revealed to the disciples there all of the things in Scripture concerning himself. Romans chapter 5, we see this parallel between Adam and Christ and how Christ is a type of Adam. And we go through 
uh, Hebrews, and we'll see uh, all sorts of typology and patterns and how a type is like a, a seal that is to be pressed in onto the wax of our lives, and we are to be conformed to that. It's the same image. So you've got these, this mutual um, sealing in the, in the Old Testament, New Testament, and different passages that say this looks the same, right? So looking for these patterns and so on. We looked at Galatians 4, how the, Paul talks, there's that very complicated section with the two mothers and the two sons, Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, slave woman, free woman, mountains, temples, covenants, all of this wrapped up into this allegory that Paul says. He's like, let me talk to you as an allegory. Let me explain what's going on. And he uses the scriptures to, to show um, the power of the new covenant that is in Christ. All right, um, yeah, and then we looked, at, we looked at Jehu as well. All right, are there any questions from last week before we move into some texts this week? All right. Well then, look with me in your notes to the passage in 1 Peter 3. Baptism. There's a theme here that we can, we can grab hold of a theme that Peter brings out in these verses, and we want to be able to understand what Peter is doing with this. Okay, so I'll read through it, and this is like that passage in Galatians four. Uh, one of those texts when you read it, you just kind of scratch your head and just move on because it's kind of weird. But when we sit and and and, and marinate in it, there's a lot of really incredible things that are going on here. A lot of connections that can be made throughout the scriptures. So I want you to interact with me on this one. I want us to discover these things together. And then in a little while, we'll break up into groups and, and we will do some of this together. All right. So 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went, to, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of, of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That is a really packed full little passage right there. So what are some of, if we were to do the historical piece, what are some of the main elements that seem to come to the top, right? That, that seems to percolate up and, and, and that we see immediately that jump out. What are some of the, the things there? Noah, right? So Noah's definitely seems odd. And oftentimes, it's the very odd things in the text that are kind of waving at you and saying, hey, you know, pay attention to me. Uh, don't just move by. So yeah, Noah. What about Noah? Okay. Somehow corresponds to baptism. Yeah, Absolutely. So baptism would be another big theme. So you've got Noah, you've got baptism. 
good. What else? Okay, how so? Where do you see that in the passage? Formally did not obey. Formally did not obey, okay. That is true. We cannot keep the law. Um, but we also see that the spirits, or the, the folks that he's talking about in Noah's day would, would be actually before the law even came. So, but... but yeah, right, and that, that's an important piece, right, is the, the law, and, and Paul talks about this even with guilt. Guilt, sin existed before the law, right, but it wasn't until the law that we are able to actually account for it and, and atone and make sense of it and understand it, um, and likewise grace existed before. But. So yeah, what else? Okay, where's that? All right. Yeah, you got the, the gospel wrapped up there in the very first verse. And if we were to pay attention, or if we were to, to, to split up the gospel or explain the gospel, how would we do that? Christ suffered once for sins, so you got the cross. Um, and how did he do this? In what way did he suffer? Well, the righteous one for the unrighteous. And for what, for what purpose? Then to bring us to God. And then being put to death, cross again in the flesh, but made alive, there's the resurrection in the spirit. So you got the cross, the death, and the resurrection. You have the accomplishment of the cross, which is to bring us to God, right? So there's, there's a movement there. That's, that's always an important thing to pay attention to. Um, he brings us somewhere. He brings us to God. He made us alive, or he was made alive in the spirit. How so? Okay. All right. So the ark is mentioned. And that corresponds to Christ, to baptism, to salvation somehow. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, which is one of the, the strange things about this, this passage, which is one of the reasons people move on pretty quick. This is one of the passages that the Apostles' Creed actually really held on to when they said he descended into hell. Um, and that makes a, most evangelicals very uncomfortable with that idea. And some, I've heard, uh, explain it. Well, no, he, he experienced hell upon the cross in that he took the wrath of God upon him. There's some truth to that. But this is talking about an actual dissension Two spirits that did not obey him. So absolutely, we want to pause there and say, what's going on? 
So if we were to answer that, what is going on? When did that happen? In the tomb, okay. Yeah. So he proclaims the gospel to the spirits even while he's dead. And what does he say to them? Might not say it necessarily right here, but he proclaims something. So what was it that he proclaimed? Oh, you're good. Okay. Okay. The gospel is a two-sided sword. <laughs> when Christ died on the cross, um, something really incredible happened. For all those Old Testament saints, let's look at. We'll use David and Goliath as the example, right? David, who died in Christ, in covenant with God, dies and he is waiting for his redemption. That redemption comes with Christ. Romans 3 talks about this a little bit. For this passage that we know, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Right? It was to show his faithfulness at the present time, that'd be Christ, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So you've got David who sins with Bathsheba and gets off scot-free. I mean, he, not really. There's a, there's, there's a punishment that he loses a child, which is awful. But David didn't die. David didn't go to hell for that, but he deserved it. He broke the law. David just walks. He doesn't even get the, repro, uh, the, the discipline of the law. All he gets is grace. So... So how is that fair, that David is not in hell, right? Well, it's because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. This is the whole point of the Passover. There's a Passover theme there as well, right? That David's justification and redemption and propitiation, which is the satisfying of God's wrath, all of that was waiting for the Messiah to come, right? So once the Messiah comes, and Hebrews um, really dives into this, this truth. Once the Messiah comes, there is salvation for all of those in the past, in the Old Testament, who were in covenant relationship with God. What they were waiting for, what the, the blood of goats and bulls could only partly atone for, not, not really, it just allowed for there to be this vicarious relationship, essentially. Um, well, all of that was pointing toward the salvation that was waiting. Jesus came and he did that. So when, when Christ came, David was then justified and redeemed, and his sin was finally propitiated so that he might have salvation. Christ also does that for everybody after him that will believe. So when we believe in the gospel, we know that our wrath is absorbed because he's our propitiation. We know that he redeems us. We know that he justifies us. This is the salvific side of the gospel. But 
Then you look at Goliath, who died outside of covenant, where there's been no true justice that has come upon him yet. So when Christ comes, not only does he, his righteousness pour out on the Old Testament saints in the form of grace and mercy and salvation, but his righteousness also pours out on all of those who were opposed to him, like Goliath, and what that says is, your fate is sealed. You have, you have denied God. You are going to be without him forever. You, you have lost, right? You have lost. You chose your side, and now for eternity, you are forever separate. There's no hope for you. Um, before Christ came, there was actually, in the spiritual realm, some sort of ways that they could escape and, 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 and find hope. So the spirits... Of, and then that, that's the overall, that's a double-sided aspect of, of the gospel. It's a two-edged sword. It comes bringing judgment to the world. <laughs> to history, it brings judgment, and it brings salvation. Salvation to those who believe and judgment to those who do not believe. This is why John says in chapter 3 that um, for those who do not believe, you are condemned already, <laughs> Right? You, you're already condemned. You've already rejected him. You are already waiting for your ultimate end to come, which is Christ. So when he goes to the spirits in prison, these are disobedient spirits. So he goes and he proclaims his victory. He proclaims his victory over the demonic realm. He proclaims his victory over the historical realm. He proclaims his victory over the eschatological realm, all of it. Christ says, it's done. It's over. It is finished, right, upon the cross. It's, it's all been taken care of. It's also the, the parable in I believe it's in, in Luke, I don't remember which chapter, with the rich man and Lazarus, right? And that actually kind of gives us a visual where you have this big chasm, right? And you have uh, Lazarus here, and you have the rich man here. Lazarus dies, and somehow they're able to, to see each other, and they correspond with each other. And the rich man basically says, hey, I, just, I need some help. I need a drop of water. Let me go tell my friends. Um, that this place is bad. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, right? Heaven, if you would. The rich man is in Hades, hell, however, and they're actually all a part of Sheol, which is the place of the dead, which is where Christ goes when he is buried. He goes into, he descends into hell, into Hades, and Sheol, and what he does is he empties Abraham's bosom brings the Old Testament saints to be with him in paradise, which is what we would call heaven now, and then he says, your future is no more, right? All you have to look forward to is the lake of fire, which is to come, right? So this is, this is part of the proclamation that's going on here in First Peter. What else is going on? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You all remember how many years it was that it took to build the ark? A hundred years. hundred years. There's a, a sign to the world for salvation. Right? hundred years. You got the ark there. This is your salvation. This is your salvation. It is testifying. There's patience there. Yet the world is 
hating God, as the first couple verses in chapter 6 tell us. The world despised God, nothing but evil running through their minds constantly. So he waited. They deserved to die, but he waited even with that symbol of salvation for 100 years. So he was patient in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which only a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, so a couple other. Is there any other observations there? Yeah. That's, that's right. Very good. So, so then, I, I'm really glad you said that, because so now you have multiple movements going on in this passage. The first is that he brings us to God. He brings Old Testament saints to God. He brings you and I to God. So he brings us to God. He also went down and proclaimed, so went down into Sheol, and proclaim, and then he ascends, resurrects, and ascends, and now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So those spatial movements are things that we'd want to pay attention to as well. Very good. Very good. Okay, so a couple other pieces to, to see here is that we have somewhat of Maybe an inclusio, if you remember what that is. It begins and ends with something very similar. It could be the same word or thought or idea. But you have the resurrection there. Um, it says, through the resurrection, speaking of being washed with a good conscience or to make an appeal with a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then you have the resurrection mentioned above where it says, made alive. Um, then you have the ultimate ascension that's going on at the end, which is a huge theological uh, road that we could travel to say, well, let's, let's see, what, what does it mean that God has brought or raised Christ, brought him to his right hand, and now he is there with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him, right? That, that's a huge thing, and we, and we actually spend a lot of time doing that, I feel like, at Exodus Church, um, but let's go back to the Noah thing and baptism because that's a very controversial thing. Um, we can say with full confidence, baptism saves you. Which you don't want to say that, typically. But Peter says it. So then what we don't want to do is let our theology say, well, I can't really speak the way the Bible speaks. So instead I need to know what the Bible's saying so that I can speak confidently the way the Bible speaks, meaning what the Bible means, and so on. So let's, let's dive into this and see if we can figure this out. So in what way do you all think that baptism and Noah's story correspond to each other? Because that, that's what he says, they, they correspond. In what ways? You got water with both. Cleansing with both, good. New creation, okay. Good. Obedience. Yep, good. It's communal. Where do you see that in the text? 
Ah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good. A seal. Okay. When, how were they sealed into the ark? Okay. Right. And then how is baptism a divine sealing? <laughs> God's hand. <laughs> I missed the very first part. I'm sorry, Kim. Baptism does. Right, yes. Yes, absolutely. But in what way is that a seal upon us, as it mentions here? That it's a seal, or that the door was sealed. Ah, right. Okay, so it's it's a seal, um, even of of God's name to a certain degree. That if you are a baptized person, that actually matters, in a very real way. Ephesians one also talks about how the Holy Spirit seals us, right? The Father chose us, the Son redeems us, and the Holy Spirit seals us. So there's some stuff going on there as well. Good. How else would baptism and the story of Noah connect? What's that, the ark? And baptism, a demonstration of faith. Okay. Yep, Noah definitely had to... Yeah, (laughs) this is true. Okay. Yep. Good. Good, good. Very good. These are all questions that we want to ask of the text when we see something, especially when it's explicit like this. Baptism and Noah's Ark correspond to one another. We want to ask how and what way. In what way do these correspond? So these are, these are good. Um, so certainly, uh, we go through water for baptism. Noah's Ark went through water. Uh, Noah's Ark went from the old world to a new world, which is, Jamie mentioned, new creation. Uh, baptism does a very similar thing, right? It takes us from the old world into the new world. There's a reason why it talks about being baptized into Christ or baptized into uh, which uh, the scripture and Christian tradition has, has meant to, to interpret that as saying baptized into the church, right? So to, be, to even be a partner at Exodus Church, and we've had partnership classes just uh, a couple weeks ago, and one of the questions are, have you been baptized? Because if you're not baptized, you can't be a part of the church. You have to be baptized in order to be brought in. And you go from the old world into the new world, outside the church to inside the church. Um, And then when we think about that creation, 
uh, connection, I think we can go to other places as well where Christ is the new creation, and we see this with his death, burial, and resurrection, and the resurrection is the firstborn of the new creation, right? And we talked a lot about this in John 3 with the Nicodemus discussion. Um, so Christ is brought into the new creation. He is the firstborn. He is the first glorified one of the new creation, right? And then in baptism, we are mysteriously somehow brought into Christ and a part of that new creation, which Paul says in uh, Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? He says, absolutely not, right? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, right? So this baptism and being brought in, now you've been baptized, now walk in the newness of life. Something when, when, um, when we talk about baptism from the very beginning at Exodus Church, we say, once you're baptized, part of your sanctification, part of the, the, the work of the church is to call one another to live according to our baptisms, right? Our baptism says something about us. God says something about us in our baptism. So we are to walk in accordance to that. Don't, you're baptized. We say this to our kids, you're baptized. Don't act like that. Live according to your baptism. Live faithfully as a Christian, as someone who has been baptized into Christ. So Paul connects baptism and new creation as well in Hebrews 6. Even in, in Jesus' baptism, if we go to Mark, this is a really cool, cool thing. If you go to Mark chapter 1, with the baptism of Jesus, verses 9 through 11. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. That's the same word that's used for the curtain being torn open um, in Mark, and that's, that works as an inclusio in Mark as well. They work together. The heavens being torn open, um, and the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. What does that sound like? What are some of the elements in that passage that would call our attention to another passage? Okay, transfiguration. Yeah. And there's another one as well. But you're right, the voice speaking, that is absolutely similar with the transfiguration. So that, that, is, that is true. In fact, there's a lot of baptismal imagery in the transfiguration because of, of that connection. But when we think about cre new creation, I mean, yeah, where else do you have the word of God present, the spirit hovering over waters, and a voice coming out of the sky? <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's like a, a, a beautiful retelling of creation itself, right? This takes the Genesis account and just wraps it up into a little ball for us and says, this is, this is new creation language here. God speaks. <laughs> the word is present in Christ. There's water and the spirit comes and descends and is, is hovering over. So you certainly see some 
a new creation language there as well. Uh, Colossians 2, when we see Christ, oh, let me go there. There's another one. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Actually, we'll just start in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's metaphysics type stuff again, right? Dwells bodily. I just lost my place. There it is. And you have been filled in him. You've been brought into, filled with the fullness of deity. Who is the head of all rule and authority? That would even correspond to the last part of our passage in Peter. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then it goes on to talk about how we were made, to, made alive together with him. He's forgiven us of our transgressions. So this resurrection theme is associated both with baptism and the new creation constantly. And then Peter would even put those together for us. So and then there's also interesting connections with the word ark, right? Noah's ark. There's another ark in the Old Testament. Does anybody know what it is? Nope. That's, wait, who said what? Moses' basket, right? Very rare word, and it's the same one. Noah's ark and then the basket. And if you remember the story of Noah, it floats over a river, right? So it goes through the water just like the ark goes through the water. But what's underneath? Death, uh, right? I mean, he, they were killing all of the, the, the kids in the Nile. And then all the people die in the flood. And both arcs float over death. So there's, you got a connection there. Um, so we could look at Moses' life. And actually, Moses' life is a baptism story as well, as Paul says. We talked about when he goes through the waters, that is baptism, that you've been baptized into Moses. Right, so there's you got these connections going on there as well. With Moses and, and uh, Noah? Yeah, there might be. I don't remember if it describes what the basket is made out of. It might. I don't remember. Reeds? Mm. Yeah. And if it's the Hebrew word for tree is eights. So if it's, if it's that, and eights can mean all sorts of things, from a thicket to a cedar to a, an axe handle, right? That's made out of wood. They're all eights. So, yeah. Right. But, but certainly you have this picture of you have a redeemer that, that goes, floats over the, the death, if you would, in order to, to redeem a people. Moses is called a redeemer in the Song of Moses, or right after that. Um, what was that? Oh. So you have this, this similar life with Moses and Noah, with the ark stories. Um, and both of them bring God's people into a new creation, one through the waters of the Red Sea, and then one through the actual flood of the earth, and both of them step out on the other side, and there's a celebration, there's 
I mean, Noah does the wine, they sing songs, and, and so on. Yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. Well, good. Um, so let's, is there any other questions on this? Do we, do we wrap that up at all for us? And I'm not looking to answer all the questions of First Peter. It is an incredibly dense passage there. But what we want to do is see how we can ask questions of the passage and understand that there's, there's something going on here with baptism and Noah's Ark. And as, as Noah's Ark saved, right, the people coming through the waters, the Ark is a type of Christ. The waters is a type of baptism. You go, the, the waters is both life and death representing at the same time. Um, they go through it, and you come out on the new creation. When, uh, when he says baptism now corresponds to this, or baptism saves you, there's this aspect that we are brought into the salvific covenant community of God's people through baptism as the ark went through the waters and as Israel were baptized through the, the Red Sea. And one thing that's really important, just so we don't get confused as um, Lutheran regenerative baptism people, you know what I'm saying there, baptismal regeneration, in the sense that you're baptized and you're, you're saved, you're going to heaven, right? right? All of those categories are way more complicated than that statement, right? And that's where the discussion needs to come in. But as to leave no ambiguity, Paul talks about this in Hebrews 10, where he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. This is not Hebrews 10, this is 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, unaware, brothers, that our fathers all, under, uh, all were under the, the cloud and passed through the sea, that's talking about the Exodus story, and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate, so that's baptism, all ate the same spiritual food, that's talking about communion, right? Baptism precedes the Lord's Supper, right? That's the washing before the eating sort of piece. Um, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they uh, drank from the spiritual rock, uh, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example, actually as a type, typos, that's that word, as a type for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Then do not be idolaters, and he goes in, right? So what, what Paul is saying to these Corinthians, and you've been baptized, that's good, you're, you're taking the Lord's Supper. In fact, you're getting drunk off of it, right? That's not good, but you are taking it. You're a part of the people of God. But let's not forget. I don't want you to be unaware of this, right? Egypt, uh, Israel went through the, the waters. All of our fathers went through. They were all baptized. They were all took upon themselves um, the blessings of the spiritual food and the spiritual, spiritual drink, yet they walked away from God. Don't let this be, happen to you, right? Don't let this be your story. Use this as an example. This is what Paul is doing. So he acknowledges baptism, but he's not saying, oh, don't worry about it. Since you've been baptized, you're, you're locked in to, to heaven for all eternity. That's just not the way the Bible thinks about it. But it does think about it in ways that are far more interesting and perhaps even troubling at times uh, than, than we're used to. All right, any questions on First Peter? Okay, so this is what I want to do for the, for the next half hour, is to break up into groups. And we're going to go to the Exodus passage, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. 
That's a fairly short passage. The other ones I have are longer. But let's break up. Matt, did you count how many people are here? Did I see you counting? 51. 51. So let's break up in groups of five or six, right? Roughly 10 groups of five or six. And work through these seven verses of Exodus 17. And pay attention to some, like we did in, in Peter, pay attention to some of the things. And then try to make some of the connections. And we'll do that for about 15 minutes. And then we'll come back and share those, Okay. So this is just such a, a great practice of let's just read the Bible together and look for the, well, it's not there anymore, but the historical pieces that we need to pay attention to and then how it might connect to Christ, okay, or and to his church. All right, so let's do that. Let's break up into groups and then we'll come back. All right, so we are uh, familiar with the story, having read it, discussed it, looked for some of the patterns and connections. So if we were to think about the typological connections, right? We, we know the story that they're, they're in the desert. God moves them. They complain that there's no water. They complain against Moses, right? Ultimately, uh, God has them strike the rock, and the water comes out, and they all drink. We know the story. So where are the connections there? What, what did your group come up with? How does this point us to Christ and his bride? Yeah. Okay. Good, good. So for that to work, we'd have to make sure that we believe that Jesus and the rock correspond, or God and the rock correspond, right? So can we do that? What? I actually read it already, right? <laughs> Christ is the rock, so that's a great example. <laughs> Very good. What else? Ah, yes. That's great. That's really good. Numbers 20 is the time where he hits the rock. It says twice, but that's not true. It means he hit it a second time. It's not that he went dink, dink in Numbers 20. It's out of anger he came to the rock and he hit it when he wasn't supposed to. And he wasn't able to go into the promised land for that. We often think he hit it. Oh, you can't go to the promised land. What? <laughs> like, seriously? What's the big deal? But if we understand the story, it shines light on, on Numbers 20 and why Moses couldn't go into the promised land. And that, that's exactly right. I don't, no, I don't think it is. It might, no, I don't think so. In Numbers 22? Okay, well, maybe it is. 
Yeah, it was renamed. Maybe it, maybe it is. That's a good thought. Yeah. I didn't think it was, but it might be. Good. Others. Good. Yeah, very good. Very good. Salvation comes from strange places. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's right. So then we can identify grumbling Israel as being the enemy of God at this point. In the same way Satan is the enemy of God as he tests him. That's good. Very good. What else? Good. That's also picked up later in John, in 7 and 8, when uh, he's standing in front of a bunch of angry people, and he says that I am the living water as well. So you got that there as well. Good. Good. It's actually just 7, 8. goes on to something else, so it's just 7. Yeah. Good, good, yep. And one of those, those signs that they had just received was the bitter water turning sweet. And now they're, they're upset about water again. It's amazing how fickle we are as people, right? <laughs> Seriously. You can be blessed by the Lord in one moment, just be praising him, and 30 seconds later be cursing him because something didn't go our way. Yeah. right good very good others mm. Absolutely. That's good. Very good. The, the first reaction when they needed something was to uh, go back to uh, You see, I don't, this is good, right? Right now we've heard all sorts of different things from each other after about six minutes of reading the Bible together. And then we talk about it together. And we're hearing things that we haven't thought about before, questions that we haven't asked. 
this is how the Bible is supposed to be read, right? We read it together, we read it in community, we make those connections, and we, we talk about it. Um, if, if we were, any of us, I think, just to sit down and say, I'm going to just read Matthew, uh, or Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and we spend six minutes, I don't think we would have gotten what we just got, right? It's, it's meant to be read together. Any other thoughts on that? And I'll, I'll walk through it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's there's something that that's connected there as well with the stoning. That's a there's a legal thing going on there with Stephen, right? That he is he is testifying. He is he's blaspheming essentially. And in his testimony, they were just enraged by it, and they and they kill him. And that, I think there's some of that in here too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Be something there. Others. good. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good one. Good. I think you guys have hit most everything that I, that I see here, too. Um, there's, there's a benefit, again, when, when we study it, uh, to, to dive deep into that historical piece, right? We want to, want to do the word studies and all that, and, so, and, and things emerge out of that as well. Right, so uh, I'll share some of that, which you couldn't have gotten um, based off of just reading it here. But if you were to dive in deeper and, and do more of the study, other things start to emerge from this text as well. Um, so what we have going on here is is a a court case. It's a legal proceeding, right? And then that actually begins to pull the law into this discussion, and that pulls um, atonement theory and 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 sacrifice. And punishment, retribution, into, into the story as well. Um, but if, if we were to go through it, um, I'll kind of hit the highlights and then, and then try to explain some of it as well. So you have Israel who moved from the wilderness of sin to Rephidim, responding to God's command. There's no water. So the people quarreled, right? It, it, who else has a, different, who has a different translation than quarrel? You all read quarrel? Okay. The, the word... Is, is a word that is connected to the legal system, and it means to bring legal charges against, right? It means to bring legal charges against. So the people brought charges against Moses, saying, give us water to drink. And what are the charges? Well, verse three, the charge is, 
you're responsible for our death. You brought us out here to kill us. And, and, and they were getting ready to stone him because the penalty of leading people to death is death, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth sort of thing. Uh, that's in, uh, shoot, it's in the law. <laughs> so in verse three, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then how does Moses respond to this charge? Why do you quarrel? Why do you bring legal charges against me? Why do you put Yahweh to the test? That word is another legal word, which means trial. <laughs> Why do you bring legal charges against me? Why do you put Yahweh on trial? Right? You're, 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 if you want a trial, you can have one sort of thing. Um, why are you doing this? So Moses goes to God for an answer, and we find this in verse 4. And Moses tells God that the people are ready to execute him, rightfully so, if the charges are true, okay? Rightfully so, if the charges are true. Yahweh then responds in verse 5, which says a couple different things. Pass before me, take some of the elders with you. These would act as judges in the trial. And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now, if you're on trial and you're accusing Moses and he just talks to God, and he picks up that staff, Israel would be very nervous, right? I mean, think about what Moses has done with this staff. He now picks this thing up, and he goes, and he walks before the people. So we have a scene that looks something like this. You have all the people of Israel, right? Then you have Moses that comes, and he is called to walk before the people, and he has a staff in his hand. Not only him, but he's got some of the elders with him, the judges, right? So this is the scene that's taking place. You're starting to have the those who are accusing the defendants and then, and then moving forward, or I should say prosecutors. Um, so Yahweh continues in verse 6. He says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. So then, just for the sake of analogy, there's a rock. Um, and you have God. In Greek, this letter is theta, which is often used in shorthand for, for God the Father, in the same way that chi is used, X, for, for Jesus. Um, so God is standing before him on the rock, right? And then what does he say? You shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out. So what's going on here is Yahweh knows exactly what's going on. He understands that Moses is not guilty, right? He did not lead him out there uh, to die. And there's another death penalty in the law, and it's actually in that same eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth passage, uh, which is if you bear false testimony against someone, whatever you accuse them of, that happens to you. The penalty happens to you. You don't bear false testimony against people. It, is, it can be a death penalty, Right? If I say, Jamie, you stole $10 from me, and we go and, and God says, no, that's not true. You knew it and you lied about it. Now I have to give you $10, right? That's how, that's how it works. So if I said, hey, you killed me, you're trying to kill me, and I, I'm wrong about that, I bear false testimony, then you kill me, sort of thing. Um, that, that's how it works. Bearing false testimony is a big deal. So in the trial... 
The guilty ones is Israel. They all deserve to die at this moment. They have brought false testimony to God. So what does God do? You have the judges here basically sitting on their bench. You have the ones that deserve, and God steps into the middle and says, I'll be on the rock, strike the rock. And he takes the rod in which he destroyed the gods of Egypt, split the Nile, brought locusts. Uh, this rod is the sign of God's judgment on Egypt. Takes the sign of the judgment and strikes the rock. And then what flows out but life for all the guilty ones, <laughs> right? So Paul definitely says Christ is the rock, right? Upon, upon the cross, absolutely out of his side, out of the rock's side comes water and blood, which is life for the people. And not only that, but we see that the people drink of this. Moses and the people are reconciled after this because of what he has done, right? Um, he goes to the cross in our place. He bears the wrath of God in our place. He Christ is the rock that was struck because of the sins of the people. People deserve to die. We deserve to die. The rock turns into the cross, and, and we receive the blessings that come from the innocent one, God himself taking upon himself the judgment we deserve. So just a couple words. And then if you go down at the Meribah and Mesa, those two words uh, are transliterations of the Hebrew words for trial and quarrel. So you have, we'll call this place trial and legal charges. <laughs> Maribone messes sound better. Um, and then, if we were to stay with this a little bit longer, with the water theme that comes here, and uh, McNay, you had mentioned, well, actually Anna mentioned that you said, the woman at the well in John 4, but the John 7 is a very interesting story as well. John 7 connects to all sorts of places in the Bible, but this is one of them. Because Jesus stands up and proclaims, I am the living water, right? Come, drink, drink of me. However, if we read John 7, uh, it starts with the people muttering and complaining about Jesus, saying that uh, Jesus was leading people astray. We see this in 7 verse 12. Then in verse 20, we see the people accuse Jesus falsely, a false testimony, saying that you have a demon. And then you keep going, and Jesus says later in 7, shortly thereafter, that he is uh, the living water. And then we go to 8, and we see Jesus is on trial for bearing false testimony. So John, in chapter 7, in the beginning of chapter 8, actually capture this story as well, where Jesus is the main character as we go through it. But that's, that's one of the importance of being able to, to figure out how to do a word study, right? Say, quarrel, that's such a strange word. What does that mean? Are they just arguing with each other? Well, yeah, but in a different way. This is a sort of arguing that I'm going to sue you. <laughs> you did this to me, sort of arguing. And then testing is actually more of a, a trial sort of piece. And then that begins to bring it up. And then the spatial movements are really important to see as well. Right? Again, you have the people separated. Moses says, go before the people. I will stand before you. You strike the rock, and, and so on. So you've got this movement that actually sets up a court case. Um, all right. Any questions or thoughts on that? Absolutely. 
Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Others? Yeah, that's true. That is true. I think it was uh, Franklin Graham came under fire during the, was it the prayer? Or it was when um, President Trump was being inaugurated and it started to rain. And he he said something like, water is always a blessing um, in the Bible. And everybody's like, wait a second. (laughs) It's like pictures of the flood and all this sort of stuff. (laughs) You spoke a little too soon there, Mr. Graham. Yeah. Good. Other thoughts on, on this or any questions overall on some of the material that we've covered? Yeah. Yeah, well, when we think about the, the Numbers 21 and why it's such a drastic sin or a horrible sin that he struck the rock is because he's striking God. And God didn't tell him to, you know, at that point. And, and then that kind of goes back to Joe's, Joe's piece as well, where that's, um, there's one atonement, there's, and, and through that we get life. But if we, and, and Hebrews kind of warns how we might re-crucify, um, which is not okay. Um, so. Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was an offhanded. Uh, comment, I, and I remember making it, but there is, um, so there is, uh, rock, wood, and water are often connected, even in the gospel story, right? Um, so from the cross to the tomb to the water coming out of his side, uh, you see this with David and Goliath, you see it in, even with curses and blessings, right? So three ways to be cursed in the Bible is, curses anyone who hangs on a tree, right? That's your curse of God. Um, if you are buried under rocks, there is no resurrection. So if you hear somebody who gets buried and rocks fall or over them. So the king and judges, um, oh man, the millstone hit him on the head, right? Killed him. Uh, that's a curse, a sign of a curse as well. That there's like no, there's no hope for you in the afterlife sort of peace. And this is part of the worldview back then. And then if you die at sea, it's the same thing. The, f- the fish will eat you and there's, there's no hope. Now, this isn't 
This isn't truth within a, a, a biblical theology. This is the culture of the time. Um, so the tree piece is, is obviously talked to about, uh, talked about with, with Christ. Uh, the tomb, you know, that piece, and then, and then water. So those things are always wrapped up, to, oftentimes wrapped up together. And each one can be kind of pulled apart, and we can see how they, they actually tell a story throughout the Bible. But I didn't actually tell that story when, when I, I said that, so you didn't miss anything. Others? That's, that's good. Very good. Thou preach. Is the Lord among us? It doesn't seem like it often, but let me tell you the ways. That's good. Others? All right, so I would encourage you this, this next week to look at, look at 1 Samuel 4 through 6. This is a fascinating story. Read it to your kids. It's, it's fun. It's good. Um, it's action-packed. Uh, read through that. And, and with your, by yourself, with your family, with your community group, whatever it might be, and, and start doing some of the work that, that you did in five minutes here. Uh, do that this week, and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll work through it. And then same thing with Genesis 22. Um, read through that, and, and we'll try to get through both of those passages in groups like we did with Exodus 17. And then uh, we'll have a few more things to, to discuss next week as well, but uh, we we'll want to spend more time doing this. Um, I think there, if you have the notes from, from then, I put a list on there. Um, let me find it here. Blue Letter Bible, um, here we go. Yeah, so, so Logos Bible Software is, is a great one. It's just a concordance. If you have a concordance at home and Bible dictionaries or study Bibles, those things are helpful, uh, really helpful. But Logos, if you want to buy something, I think they start at like 50 bucks, and then you, you can literally spend $30,000 um, for one package through Logos. It's like buying an entire seminary library. Um, which my birthday's coming up, so no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not, it's not till October. <laughs> Which is also Pastor Appreciation Month. So um, I am seriously just kidding. Uh, we have a building to build, and $30,000 will be much better. That'll get you there. Uh, Biblia is actually the Logos Bible software free online piece, so it's limited, but there is a resource in there called the Lexum. No, the Faith Life Study Bible. The Faith Life Study Bible, if it was actually printed out, would be big. It it is the best single study Bible resource I've ever seen. And that's, I believe, for free on Biblia. Bible Study Tools and then Bible.org, those all have different things. But the Blue Letter Bible is really good for word studies, and it, it links up with some lexicons of Greek and Hebrew, and we'll translate that stuff for you. So those are just really helpful tools. 
Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, good. Thanks for saying that. So the Logos Bible study, Logos Bible software app, you can download for free. And I think, there, I think there's like 40 or 50 resources in there, including the Faith Life Study Bible and a couple lexicons. So that, that would be a good way. And you can do word studies in that as well. Good. Anything else? All right, let me pray for us and we can be on our way. Lord God, we